We'll be looking at a couple of different scripture passages this morning, the first of which is Exodus chapter 17. I invite you to open your Bibles there. It's on page 80 in your pew Bibles. Um, Our other text will be from Numbers 20, but to give some context to that main text, we're going to start in Exodus 17. We'll read the first seven verses of that chapter. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And now turn over to Numbers chapter 20. That can be found on page 176 of your pew Bibles. This is the other account of water coming out of a rock, which is much later in their wilderness journey. Numbers chapter 20, the first 13 verses. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, 
Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. I want to start off this evening by asking the children a question. How do you know your parents love you? If your answer is, because they tell me they love me, I want you to think a little harder. What do your parents do that lets you know that you're loved? If you're old enough to have been introduced to Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages, you might think of one of those categories. Physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, or acts of service. But I bet most of you have more specific answers. Things like, they give me hugs, they play catch with me, they tell me I'm beautiful, they give me birthday presents, or they read me bedtime stories. I bet a lot of the older boys answered with, they feed me. And the older girls probably leaned towards, they listen to me. Kids, what do all these answers have in common? They're all ways that parents meet your needs. The need of comfort, the need of encouragement, the need of hunger, or the need of support. Parents show love to their children by providing for their needs. But what else does the Bible say about how parents love, show love to their children? A recurring answer, especially in the book of Proverbs, is discipline. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12 state, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Kids, I know it's hard to see the love of your parents in moments of discipline, but I hope you're able to look back on some of the discipline you've received and recognize that your parents did it out of love and for your good. When God corrects you in your sin, he often uses parents as his instruments. Parents show love to their children by judging sin through discipline. Both of these ways of showing love, providing for needs and judging sin through discipline, appear in the narrative we read from Numbers 20. And since God's love always reveals his holiness, we see in our passage that God shows his holiness by providing for his people and judging sin. We're going to look at this theme statement in three ways. First, the setting for provision. Second, the grounds for judgment. And third, the holiness of God revealed. Let's turn to our passage now and see how this unfolds. First of all, we see the setting for provision. Verse 1 of our text sets some of the context for this narrative. There are a couple of things for us to note here, the first being the time. This passage only tells us that it is the first month, but Numbers 33, which is a recounting of all their encampments, gives us a little bit more detail. Numbers 33, verses 36 through 38 read, they moved from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. They moved from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the boundary of the land of Edom. Then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there, 
In the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. The episode we have before us comes as the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness are drawing to a close. Many scholars assume that the designation the first month is referring to the beginning of the 40th year, meaning that the generation that had been sentenced to die in the wilderness is now gone. The second thing to notice is the location, the region of Kadesh. The Israelites have been here before, as it is the location where the 12 men rejoined the Israelites after spying on the land of Canaan. Talking about the spies, Numbers 13, verse 26 reads, Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. It is curious that here it says Kadesh is in the wilderness of Paran, but in our passage it says it's in the wilderness of Zin. Most biblical scholars agree that the same location is being referenced, but Kadesh lies where these two wildernesses meet. The wilderness of Paran covers much of the central region of the Sinai Peninsula, and the wilderness of Zin lies to the northeast, just south of the land of Canaan and west of Edom. So in Numbers 13, you have Kadesh placed on the northeast side of the wilderness of Paran, and in Numbers 20, you have it placed on the southwest side of the wilderness of Zin. So the scene is set. The old generation has passed away, and the Israelites are back at the location where their parents had refused to go into the land of Canaan. Only this time there is no water to drink. And this leads us to the complaint of the people. If you're familiar with the entire story of the Israelites' journey from Egypt to Canaan, these words of complaint by the people probably sound too familiar. The complaint recorded for us in Numbers 20 is mainly an echo of many of the earlier Israelite complaints, but it's also a little more pointed. They make sure Moses knows that Kadesh is not the land flowing with milk and honey that they were promised. And then they say they would have rather died in the past 40 years than be in the position they're in now. Commentators are split over who our brethren that they mention is referring to in their death wish. Some say it's the generation that died in the wilderness, and some say it refers to those who died after the Korah, Dathan, and Abiram controversy. Either way, in a sense they're saying that they would rather have died because of rebellion against the Lord than to be where they are. They are committing the very sin that Psalm 95, the psalm that our call to worship came from, would be written to warn against. Verses 7 through 11 of that psalm read, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when our fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation, and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." It's easy for us to pass judgment on the attitude of the Israelites, but let's pause and acknowledge that we would be impatient too. For those of you who have built or remodeled a house, how long beyond the original completion date can you tolerate before you think to yourself, we should have never started this project? 
If you lived in a house during a remodel, were you ever irritable when the water had to be off for even just a few hours? Remember, the Israelites have been in the wilderness for 40 years, and now there is no water to drink for them, their children, or their livestock. They are more than ready to have a permanent home in the promised land close to a well. The promised land couldn't come soon enough for them, but the way this longing came out was stained with sin. Instead of praying to God and asking for him to bring them home, they grumbled and complained. Moses and Aaron know that this is not a request they can handle on their own. They head to the tabernacle where God's glory appears and they hear the response from the Lord. This scene also has a sense of deja vu built into it. As mentioned, the last time the Israelites were at Kadesh, they heard the report of the spies. Their response back then was one of complaining, saying they wished they had died in the wilderness instead of having to face the Canaanites. The glory of the Lord then appeared in the tabernacle, and God threatened to destroy Israel with pestilence and make a nation out of just Moses. It was only after Moses interceded for the people that God relented and sentenced them to wander in the wilderness. Will history repeat itself after this latest round of contending with Moses and Aaron? Well, as we see in our text, no. God shows patience and mercy with this new generation. God's response is one of provision. It also sounds very similar to the response he gave to Moses at Rephidim, which we read in Exodus 17. In both of these instances, God responds in what seems to be a matter-of-fact manner. Grab a staff, go to a rock, and water will come out of it. Even though they're very similar instructions, I want to highlight the differences between them. The most obvious difference is the action Moses is supposed to take. In Exodus 17, Moses is told to strike the rock, and in Numbers 20, Moses is told to speak to the rock. Why the difference? First of all, we should acknowledge that God is sovereign, and he can choose the means by which he will provide water for his people. But there's another difference between these instructions that sheds light on striking versus speaking. Listen again to verse 6 of Exodus 17. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. This is a detail that I had missed until I really studied this passage. God's very presence is standing on the rock that Moses is to strike. The symbolism we're supposed to see is that God is allowing himself to be struck so that the people can have water. The miracle is not so much that striking the rock produces water, but that striking Christ releases life-giving nourishment. If you're not sure about this interpretation, then turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In the first five verses, Paul tells the Corinthian church, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Looking at this from the perspective of our Numbers passage, the figurative Christ has already been struck, 
the old generation has died and been buried, and the new generation has risen up in its place. Therefore, the rock here is a type of the risen and ascended Christ that believers can speak to in order to receive nourishment. Christ has been struck once, and it's no longer appropriate for him to be struck again. The last difference between the instructions in these two passages is the rod to which is to be used. In Exodus 17, God tells Moses to use the rod with which he struck the Nile River and brought the plagues upon Egypt. How fitting that the rod used to strike Egypt would be used to figuratively strike Christ as well. In Numbers 20, Moses is told to bring the rod from before the Lord. Commentators are split on which rod this is, but most of them agree that this refers to Aaron's rod, which had budded as a symbol of God choosing the tribe of Levi to minister before him. So this is likely not the rod of plagues and judgment, but the rod of holiness or set-apartness. Verse 9 also tells us that Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. But sadly, that seems to be the only instruction that he obeyed. The following verses lay out before us the grounds for judgment. Moses and Aaron gather the congregation before the appointed rock, but the first thing that goes wrong is the words of Moses. Time and time again, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we have read that Moses did all that the Lord commanded. Back in Egypt, Moses and Aaron executed the ten plagues as the Lord commanded. They instituted the Passover according to the Lord's instructions. In Exodus 17, we saw that Moses struck the rock as the Lord commanded him. And Moses directed the building of the tabernacle exactly as God revealed it to him. Moses' history would indicate that he will execute this miracle according to the instructions he received. But that's not what happens, is it? Instead of speaking to the rock, Moses speaks to the people, and his words are not uplifting. He says to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? The first word that should jump out to us is rebels. This word is used to describe the congregation in the aftermath of the Korah, Dathan, and Abiram conflict, but that was the previous generation. Moses did not seem to have the same patient and merciful attitude that God showed in his instructions for what to do. By calling the people rebels, Moses is showing that he, is, he too is impatient in this situation. Worse yet, on an occasion where God did not judge the people's complaining, Moses takes it upon himself to act as judge. The second word that we should pay attention to is we. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Most commentators agree that the we is referring to him and Aaron. In prior episodes of the grumbling congregation, Moses has also asked how he will provide for the people, but that was always before receiving direction from the Lord. This time, Moses had already received his instructions from the Lord, yet his words show that he sees himself and Aaron as responsible for providing for God's people. Moses' words reveal that he sees himself as a savior and judge rather than the servant and mediator he has historically been. It's not so much the people who are rebelling, but Moses. Numbers 27 confirms this for us. For when God is recounting to Moses what happened at Kadesh, he says, 
For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hollow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Congregation, how often do we make similar mistakes? Do we ever make ourselves judge instead of God? How often do you judge yourself as unworthy of acceptance by God instead of allowing God to judge you as worthy through faith in Christ? Do we ever make ourselves saviors in God's place? How often do we seek to fix people our own way so that we can get the credit instead of encouraging the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives so that God's name is praised? It can feel like a fine line between letting God use us as his instruments and doing the work for him, but that line is drawn by whom we want to glorify, ourselves or God. Moses' words placed him on the wrong side of this line, and this rebellious shift in his role is furthered by the actions of Moses. The most obvious way that Moses' actions reveal his rebellion is that he strikes the rock instead of speaking to it, and not just once, but twice. It's tempting to feel bad for Moses because it seems like the precedent was set at Rephidim for the strike of a rod to release water from a rock. But as we said before, it was symbolically Christ that was being struck, not just the rock. God's presence is not on the rock here at Kadesh, so striking it is not appropriate this time. And moreover, he uses the rod that symbolized the holiness of the tribe of Levi to carry out his violent act. I understand if you think I'm being too hard on Moses, but there's a phrase in verse 11 that often gets overlooked that I want to point out. It's the phrase, Moses lifted up his hand. At first glance, that seems to be like a very fitting way to describe what one would do before striking a rock with a rod, but the original Hebrew hints at something different. First of all, in all the other instances where Moses' staff is used to perform miracles, it never says that he lifted or raised his hand. It either says that he raised his staff or he stretched out his hand. So the wording here is unique when it comes to performing miracles with the staff. Secondly, the Hebrew words that are translated as lifted his hand are only paired together about a dozen times in the Old Testament. Most often, they are translated with English words like with boldness, presumptuously, or rebelled. 1 Kings 11 tells the account of when Jeroboam left King Solomon and fled to Egypt. In verse 26, it literally says that Jeroboam lifted his hand against the king, but listen to how it's translated at the end of this verse. Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zeredah, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. Sometimes the phrase comes out literally in translation, but the context shows a rebellious meaning. In the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, he talks about God's enemies in the land of Canaan, and he says this in verse 27. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is high, and it is not the Lord who has done this. What we learn from these and other uses of this Hebrew idiom is that the words we have before us should be understood figuratively instead of literally. They reveal the attitude of Moses' heart 
as if he was shaking his fist at God as he struck the rock twice. Moses is acting in defiance, yet his actions set the stage for how the holiness of God is revealed. Verses 11b through the end of our passage tell us how God responds to a complaining congregation with a rebellious leader. First of all, we see the holiness of provision. Despite the disobedience of Moses and Aaron, God still answers the original request of his people. The end of verse 11 tells us that water came out of the rock abundantly. We might wonder why God still allowed water to flow from the rock since Moses acted disobediently. But isn't this the way things usually work with sinful human beings? Even though Abraham took matters into his own hands, God was still faithful to his promise to give him a seed through Sarah. And even though Jacob deceived both Esau and Isaac, God still blessed him because he was the one whom he had chosen to love. And don't we see in this a picture of what happened to Christ? Even though Jesus is worthy of all worship and praise, God chose to provide salvation through the wicked act of his crucifixion. We can even relate this in our own lives. God tells us to trust in him for our daily bread, yet how often does he provide blessings for us even when we are anxious about where those blessings will come from? And for those of us who are parents, we are told to train up our children in godliness. Yet how often do kids grow up to love and serve the Lord despite the failures of their parents? We need to remember that not a bit of God's providence is up to us as humans. Every time we receive something good from our Father in heaven, it is not because we did something right. It is because he is a good God who delights to give his children good things. God's holiness means that he is unaffected by the ways his people sin. He is still the same. Now, his holiness would have been more clear to the Israelites if Moses had followed the instructions he was given, but his holiness was revealed nonetheless. But not only was his holiness revealed in the provision of water, but it was also revealed as the holiness of judgment. God's judgment on Moses and Aaron is the focus of verse 12 in our text. It reads, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hollow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. For the longest time, I thought the punishment they received was quite unfair. On the one hand, it seemed like such an honest mistake, following through on a task based on the instructions you received last time. But after carefully walking through the text, I hope you can see that his inexact obedience was actually blatant disobedience. Compare this narrative with that of Nadab and Abihu recorded in Leviticus 10. Many people are shocked that God devoured them immediately after they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. But we reformed people who hold to the regulative principle of worship are quick to defend God, noting that God is very concerned with the way he is to be worshipped. Perhaps Moses' own words to a grieving Aaron after the death of his sons shed some light on why their own punishment is so severe in our text. Leviticus 10 verse 3 reads, And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. 
Moses and Aaron had been appointed by the Lord to come near to him and show his holiness to all the congregation of Israel. But instead, they glorified themselves. In one sense, their punishment should be seen as merciful because they were deserving of being struck down immediately for their breach of faith. By rebelling against the Lord, Moses and Aaron put themselves in the same position as the generation that had died in the wilderness, and they justly received the punishment of not being able to enter the land of promise. The book of Hebrews makes this clear as well. In chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, we read, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It was ultimately the unbelief of the generation that came out of Egypt that excluded them from the promised land, and the unbelief of Moses and Aaron led to the same fate for them. Moses and Aaron had taken God's glory for themselves here at Kadesh, so they could no longer be trusted to magnify the Lord while bringing the congregation into the promised land. So, dear people of God, what are we to make of all this? Is it enough to say, make sure your obedience is prompt and exact? Should we just turn this into a lesson in morality and encourage each other to obey better next time? Of course not. While it's true that obedience is important, that's not the main thing we need to learn from this text. We need to ask ourselves where we see Christ in this passage. In relation to the holiness of provision, we already talked about Christ as the rock in the wilderness that the Israelites drank from. But in the Gospels, this figurative language is developed further. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 4. After coming to Sychar in Samaria, Jesus sits by a well. And in verses 7 through 14, we read, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. At Rephidim and at Kadesh, the Israelites were refreshed with water from the rock, but they thirsted again. What they needed most was the spiritual drink, the Holy Spirit, that would turn them into a fountain of water. Brothers and sisters, this gift is available to us as New Covenant believers if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him and you will never thirst again. We also see clearly that Christ has holiness in judgment. 
Moses and Aaron were denied entrance into the promised land because of their disobedience. And if it were up to our level of obedience, we too would be barred from the promised land of heaven. But praise be to God that heaven's doors are open to us because of Christ's obedience and subsequent death on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 reminds us of this wonderful truth. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus had come to earth and obey God's laws to, for us because we are incapable of obeying in our own strength. That is why we can't just turn this into a story of a moral lesson. We can't do it, and we need to stop trying as if we can. Our obedience is only precious in God's eyes if it flows out of a regenerated heart that loves him and wants to honor him. If there is anyone here today who thirsts for peace in their lives because they know that they have not obeyed all of God's commandments, I urge you to heed Christ's invitation from John 7, verses 37 through 38. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Repent of your sins and stop trusting in yourself to earn your own salvation. Trust in the one who has already bought your salvation and drink of him. He alone is holy and he will make you holy if you accept him as your savior. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, you have given to us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master. Grant that as we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, so we may gratefully share it with others and ever give glory to you, by whose grace alone we are what we are, through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.